0: Welcome back to the Financial Therapy Podcast. I'm Jay Monica Jones, your host and personal financial therapist. In recent years, we've heard a lot about financial well-being or financial wellness, but what does it really mean? When we think of financial well-being, we often might think about education on strategies such as how to invest, diversify and accumulate. And if you look at your favorite bookstore, there's plenty of books on financial education strategies. But interestingly, research shows financial knowledge and experience only makes up about 9% of what makes us better at managing or multiplying our money. A lot of research is now saying that psychological and behavioral factors make up the majority of us being better with money at around 61%. So it's not surprising we are seeking more financial psychotherapists or financial psychologists that can help with us and money. And I'm gonna insert my own flagrant self-promotion here. That's why I wrote the book, The Billionaire Buddha, which repairs the psychological and behavioral issues we have with money. But enough about me, let's talk about women. What does the research say about how women manage money and how they relate to money in the context of having many structural barriers against them, such as earning less, having less superannuation because of time out of the workforce? Some women we found had such a hardship growing up that they were scarred basically for for life. To give us a lot more clarity, we are speaking with expert financial well-being and financial capability researcher, Professor Roslyn Russell from the School of Economics, Finance and Marketing at RMIT University. And just a heads up, the sound quality in some of the spaces is not fabulous. We didn't realise that until after the recording had taken place, but bear with it. Most of the quality is fabulous and fabulous content, so hope you enjoy. Roslyn Russell, thank you so much for being on the Financial Therapy podcast. Thank you, Jane. It's uh it's a pleasure to to be here and talk about money with
1: you. Just before we get started, tell us a little bit about what you do. I'm a research-only uh, professor at RMIT University. And so my role is really to work with industry, work with um, real people <laughs> and, um, and undertake research that matters. My particular area of, of research for the last oh, 18, 15, 18 years has been around financial well-being, financial capabilities, financial literacy, financial education, and, uh, and looking at a lot of programs and um, and issues that, that relate to those
0: topics. Interesting you say financial financial well-being. That's something that we hear a lot of sort of banks are using in their marketing material at the moment, or it's a bit of a buzz that word we've heard maybe in the last five years, but you've been looking and researching this area for over 15 years. Can you just give us a, an idea of a definition of what financial well being is?
1: Yes, look, it is a, it's a much better term than I think what we were talking about before then, which was more just financial literacy or um, or financial education. So financial well being is broader and and what it means is is essentially being able to um to make your commitments, your financial commitments, meet them on a day-to-day basis um, and in the future. So, be able to pay bills, food and housing. But also, it means to be financially comfortable as well. So, having enough money left over to allow you to do things that teach some joy in life. So, it's not just the the nitty-gritty, pay your bills and get through, but a little bit of comfort there. And it also means having resilience, which um, again is a bit of a buzzword, but means being able to bounce back when there's, um, when there's a financial adversity that you, you come across. And, and we all have that, rain falls on all people. <laughs> and we're not ever going to be immune from having financial hiccups from time to time, no matter how well off we are. So it captures those three things, you know, day to day, the
0: future and resilience and being comfortable. I know that you have focused on women and money. I'm really interested in speaking to you about that particularly. What did you find fascinating about researching about how money and women are linked and what we as women do differently or interestingly? Can you speak a little bit about that? Look, the the women and money came about
1: through a, a lot of commissioned research earlier, you know, first up. And I noticed through all that research that women were in this special situation where there was a lot of resilience but a lot of barriers that they, they were facing and I could see, you know, that were hampering their financial well-being. Um, and so we, from that, we put in an ARC grant, which is a, a government grant. To uh, and we did have the freedom then to look exactly what we what we wanted to about women's situation and them and money. Why did they make the financial decisions that they were making? What what were the factors that surrounded their financial situation? So it was really interesting, and we were able to spend had the luxury of spending a few years um, talking to women in across Australia and doing quite a large quantitative survey as well so it, I guess the interesting thing about women is that so much of it of their financial lives were focused on the family and not just themselves so we found that to come into the picture all the time and whenever we asked them about money they were the stories that were brought up their past, their history of, of, uh, of money when they
0: were children and also their, and how that framed their, their current situation. That's interesting you say that sort of the past with them and money, I think you refer to it as being socialisation, the modelling, I suppose, when we were growing up or maybe the, the inspiring tales or even the tales of war- warning really. Do you think that really shapes our way of being with money or um, in, some, in some sense? Oh, definitely! Look, it it, it is. It, it's um, it's in our. It
1: forms our wiring from an early age, and um, and all educationalists and and psychologists will, will know that. And and as a therapist, I'm sure that um, you can see the what our past brings to our current situation and also our future. So, uh, and, and in many cases, it's good. Um, but of course, in it varies across uh, across everybody. And some some women we found had such a such hardship growing up that they were scarred basically for for life, and it shaped it shaped their attitudes to money, it shaped their relationships, and uh, and it was really hard. It's very hard to undo that, um, especially on your own, and so. I think that's, that was the, the most fascinating part of our, our research was as soon as we would ask a question about money, it, it would immediately take them back to experiences and stories. And, you know, some were, some are were great stories, some were funny, some were re- really, really sad. But, but that's what they bring to their, their current situations and what, what drives their decisions.
0: Yeah. Being a financial therapist, of course, I sit as a therapist, but I'm often speaking to people that are in the finance area. And one of the areas that a lot of, well, like a platitude that I often hear is, is that you can't be emotional around money. <laughs> it's about survival. So of course, it's going to be locked up with lots of emotion. And it's interesting that you say that that's kind of a quality that I suppose women bring to their talking about money. What do you think about that
1: expression? Look it's this is why women don't go to financial advisors <laughs> at the banks and and um and anywhere else because and and we we got that message straight up and it was um we don't we don't trust them it was uh, they wanted to just sell us products straight away. They didn't want to hear my story. They didn't want to get to know me. They didn't ask me about my family. And so it was it was all of those um, those comments, and they were very very anti financial advisors. And I found that really concerning because we all need some help. With um, making big financial decisions, and uh, you know, it's not something we are born with <laughs> knowing this. And and if there's if people are really averse to going and seeking help, is imagine if we didn't want to go to the doctor when we had a when we had a, a serious health issue or a pain somewhere, and we don't go to see the doctor. It's this is what it's like. They and they have nowhere else to go. So it it's a very concerning issue that um, that remains remains today actually there's actually nowhere really for for everyday people and everyday women to go and seek financial advice that they're comfortable with and I remember one um one focus group we had and one woman said oh look I, I had the most amazing financial advice experience so it was a woman that she had ha- that she had um sought advice with and you know she came over, we had a wine together, and you know, for, for at least two sessions, she didn't even bring up money hardly. She got to know, she wanted to know what I wanted for myself and my daughter. And she, and everyone, of course, was saying, What's her name? What's her name? So it was, um, that was. That's what women are after. They do need to have um, their family and emotions acknowledged. Not to say that it doesn't matter or it's not to be involved. And until that's brought
0: into the picture, they are not going to get the advice or the help that they need. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, just really making it more holistic rather than yeah this part that's kind of separate from any other part of their of their worldview or you know relating to the world. Yeah, We've spoken that financial well-being is that buzzword. Often I think a lot of people believe that in order to gain a sense of financial well-being, they only or maybe look first to financial literacy and financial education, which is understanding what financial products are out there or budgeting or how I pay down debt. Do you think that's all we need in financial well-being? Mm. No, it's not all we need, but it is a necessary
1: part of it. How you get that know-how or experience is um, is one thing. And so if, if you're missing out, if you have missed out on having that experience and all the opportunity to make decisions or to learn about money or to become familiar with it, then, of course, there needs to be other avenues available to people, to women and men, to actually get the education or the um, the know-how that's needed. So and, and now it is in school, so there is some education into in the curriculum in Australia which is great and in many parts of the world. So it's uh, and that's really important because um, it's part of our life and you know, kids need to be learning about it. But if you've missed all that, where do you go? Mm. And and we don't want people to get caught up in those wealth seminars where people are flogging Property or quick, rich, rich, quick schemes. So there needs to be some unbiased, trustworthy means for, to, we talk about financial education. It doesn't have to be a classroom or it doesn't have to be sit down and take notes. And there are many different forms of financial education and it can be just a teachable moment. So, oh, I want to know about, you know, buying my own home. So let's learn about that. Doesn't mean you have to learn about every single product on the market. We call them teachable moments. Yeah. So there might be times in your life where you do need to know about a certain thing before making a certain decision and that needs to be available somewhere. So, we can't say that financial education is, is, is not necessary. It is
0: because just like reading and writing, it, yeah, that, I think it's a, it has its place. As you've been speaking about it for many years, is there kind of in government institutions or organisations that are start looking at that beyond the financial literacy?
1: We do. And I, I do work with ASIC and, and some of the banks and also community organisations um, which are, are trying to serve all people and all different situations and circumstances and the government is very much on the ball actually uh, about about financial well-being in a more holistic view so they are investing in in things like mental health and young people, mindsets, which I think mindset is one of the most critical aspects of financial wellbeing and it's even deeper than just behaviours. So, it's about creating that right mindset and uh, a mindset that's conducive to financial wellbeing and often that's a bit overlooked. It's almost like we think if we can just um, tell people the technicalities and the right behaviours but all of that, we know with all of our behaviours, whether it's about health, exercise, diet, it's about the mindset. It doesn't start with the mindset. It's, it's basically doomed to fail. So, you know, the government has a portfolio, the financial capability um, portfolio, which is really, really good at, and it's done some really great work in investing
0: in understanding financial well-being for Australians. I think what's really pertinent about our relationship with money is is that it can certainly show up the vulnerabilities that we have, financial vulnerabilities that then can open into greater vulnerabilities around housing and security and, and safety nets. In your you know research looking at women and money, what do you see as some of the big vulnerabilities that women as a cohort have? Mm, look, the, the vulnerabilities all stem from
1: inequality and that's the, the macro picture and that's where that's and unfortunately it's such a big part of it that whatever we do it's almost like trying to beat the tide or trying to get around um, these huge barriers that are there through inequality and the structural issues provide the most vulnerabilities for women. So instead of having doors open for women, we, we face closed doors And I think the vulnerabilities are around the choices and the constraints that women, the choices women have to make, basically. And do I go to work or do I, you know, stay home with the family? Childcare is so unbelievably expensive and hard to obtain in a, you know, in an affordable manner that women have to make this choice. So, okay, can't afford childcare right, have to stay home. Five years out of the work puts you behind the eight ball, no superannuation during that time. Um, So again, the inequality of not having superannuation provided to um, stay-at-home mums or or even caring for parents. This is what most women have to face. You're either facing, you know, caring for your, your children or caring for elderly or ill family members and it always mostly falls to the women and there's no provision for that for superannuation so you take time out and you're behind the eight ball and it's very difficult to catch up you know sole parents is um is another a big fact well it's on the rise and it makes it very difficult for women to to maintain um working and also caring for the family and and paying for housing affordable housing it's it just seems to be one barrier after another
0: so when you're speaking with women in your research, are they making political decisions to better that? A lot of that structural change can happen by political decisions.
1: Yeah, that's true. Look, I actually don't know the, um, the political voting habits of, of women as a, as a whole, as a general. I don't think it, it is male or female. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's more than that. Um, so yes, of course they wish for, for better childcare, and of course they they wish for better superannuation arrangements. And um, I actually, you know, remember one um, one story which will stay in my mind forever. And it was um, it was a group of women, I think in Brisbane, and it was after there was a big redundancy, a big cut in staff in the public service. And there was a woman who was like forty two. She was single actually, and um, she just said she had a cancer scare. And she said, I've just, you know, been through a cancer scare. And she goes, you know what, the first thing that I thought of was, oh, well, at least I don't have to worry about my future. And to her, that was the upside of, of having a cancer scare. And I'll never forget it. And the room, it was just a, you know, a hushed sort of a thing. And that's what it came down to. So there, there are many vulnerabilities about women's future, I think, and that um, the age group, 40 to 59, are the most vulnerable, that's where there's these big dips and it's that realisation where they have so little because of no superannuation, no provision for it, marriages have broken down maybe in that age group and um, they have spent their lives caring for their family and now they have nothing. So um, so there is that, and of course we read all those all the publicity about you know the growing um, number of homeless women in that age bracket and, um, and this is... This is the fruits that they bear after a lifetime of serving their family and um, and and going without, basically. So, it's it's really horrendous. I mean, it's not not every woman, of course, finds
0: themselves in that situation, but there is a growing number. Yeah, gosh, that piece that you just shared then just is so impactful. That wow, I'll never forget it. Yeah, death will give me kind of certainty in a way that's quite shocking. Yes, yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, other women said, um, you know, I've got $8,000, so that'll maybe get me my hip replacement. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a, a woman in her 50s or early 60s, but that's how much supra she had. And it's just, and that's what they have to look forward to. So there is a lot of, a lot of fear. Among women getting older, when they sort of realise exactly what they have and what they haven't got, <laughs> so it's. Uh, it, I think it, it is time that um, that the government looks more closely at um, at women's vulnerabilities and financial wellbeing.
0: Yeah, thank. Oh, thank you, Rosalind. I mean, that's just so poignant on how um how much of a big problem this is and it's going to get bigger as more you know as women age essentially in our Mm -hmm. um society as well i mean it's not just it's not just centric to australia it's happening all around the world you know these structural changes that need to happen yeah. yeah, look, and I think particularly in the fact that we're going through very high housing prices, as well as uncertainty in COVID. I mean, it just shows how tenuous employment can be. It's affecting a large portion of the population across every demographic, really. But particularly, yeah, when, when, when you can't afford the major asset that will be converted into your superannuation, mm-hmm. such as your house, that's that's a big, another wave of a cohort that's going to have problems in the future. Yeah, look, it sure is. That's exactly, exactly right, Jane. That's
1: the, they're the worries that we have to, think about going forward and you know we do have this whole set and it's also across all sectors you know there I mean at one point in time some sectors were immune from um from cuts but um my own sector is not immune we're going through huge amounts of cuts and redundancies which we've never seen before in in all our in you know in my whole career so so I think yeah there's there's less immunity for for people in in going through this situation at the moment
0: Yeah. So I'm just interested in the idea of debt and women. One of the big phenomena that's coming out very recently, which is also very terrifying, is the afterpay model that's not regulated. And you know, I certainly have a very strong opinion about working with my clients. Stay away from that, particularly if you have any sort of vulnerabilities, mental health vulnerabilities, because the whole thing just exacerbates it. Mm -hmm. Women and debt. Tell us a little bit about what we do around debt. It's very interesting. I'm certainly glad you have
1: that opinion and same thoughts about after pay that I have, and I'm extremely worried about that, especially for younger women and especially in this environment. Women can be quite debt averse, and that can be wrapped up in their, their childhood. There were women who told of, you know, their parents who were small business owners, losing everything, being, you know, swamped in, in debt, and they made their minds up that they would never, ever be in debt and so they even avoid, they're so debt averse that they avoid having any debt or they may have had, racked up a lot of debt on credit cards and found themselves in a lot of trouble or they may have had a partner who racked up debt and left it to them. There are many experiences that affects women's thoughts about debt. We actually find there's a decrease in credit card holding. Among among younger people, especially, but then I do worry about this transfer of that mentality to the um, afterpay scenario. So, so look, it's it is interesting, and I think that I mean the literature does say women are more risk averse, and I think that's that's probably true, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, and and I think that they more. More conservative in how they may think things through, and they don't not so impulsive about big debts and investment decisions, and that's that's a good thing. I mean, let's try and work with women's qualities rather than keep trying to beat them over the head and say, "Why are you so risk averse?" and you know, and and why aren't you acting like a man? And I think that we just we just need to work with women's qualities and the strengths that they have, and they have enormous strengths and the resilience that um, that women have and their abilities to pay down debt that they were left with. And then there were many women who were just left unfairly with, with um, large amounts of debt. So it's a mixed. Of course, it's a, you know it's a mixed feelings and, and differences across different populations. But I would say, on the whole, they they don't particularly like to be in in a lot of debt.
0: A lot of financial strategists would say that we need to ha- take a certain amount of risk in order to in order to maybe make that gain. Mm. Are women in any way not that we have to be like men? we have to find our own way but is there something that we could be a little bit more uh less risk averse in order to get better financial gain i think having access to to financial advice that was suitable to them
1: is what is the key to that and i think that if there was someone they could talk to that could work through them with their um with their conservative approaches or their worries about about it and and help them to to see the proper picture rather than just the scary picture which they they may have in their heads um based on their socialization experiences then i think there's a lot of that that could be overcome and and it just, it, it does need a, a place where they can do set their own research and, and work through that. And there's one thing I hear a lot about in terms of my, re, in the research sector that I'm in and with the finance sector is like, why don't women engage with their superannuation fund? And but what does that actually mean? And we don't know what that actually means. <laughs> Does that mean just ringing them up on a daily basis and say, hey, I'm engaging with my super fund? But that's the biggest critique um, that I hear so much of and in the research papers is that women need to engage more in their superannuation fund, then, but we don't really know what that means. So that's, what the, that's the end of the story. And, you know, unless we actually know what that means, it's very difficult for women to take that on board when we've got day-to-day costs to contend with. And if we go back to that definition, Um, of financial wellbeing, first and foremost, is meeting day-to-day commitments. And as a nation, this is what we do best. So... There's, most of us are meeting day-to-day. It's when we get to the future and it's when we get to feeling comfortable that the scores start to get a bit lower. But as a whole, we're we're content, you know, we're we're very intent on meeting our day-to-day commitments. And women do that really well. Put food on the table alongside with engaging with my super fund. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, what are we gonna do? <laughs> So it's like, where's the time for that? Where's the, um, and that's that bracket of 40 to 59. You put that bracket again. What are those women doing? They're juggling. They're trying to do a whole host of things. And I'm sure engaging with their investment strategies is probably quite low on the list in terms of time.
0: <laughs> that's, a tr- that's a really interesting concept. I'm thinking, what well, what, do I just ring the, the number of yeah. my superannuation? Yeah. Who do I speak to? <laughs> and what do you say? <laughs> what am I supposed to be saying? That's right. It could be that conversation about maybe women. Uh I know that there's, you know, there's been a bit of a there's a couple of superannuations that are run by women. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of it. Or that you make a ethical choice around what your superannuation is going to fund. But I'm unsure about do men do that either? You know, are they calling the same number? <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> look, I mean,
1: yeah, it, it is interesting and, and we haven't done a men-only study. I mean, I do know through the literature that, that, yes, men are more likely to, you know, to be engaged <laughs> with, their, with their fund. Um, but, yeah, look, it, it is interesting and I think that it's there's a many men, and it's not all that, but they're not contending as much with the day-to-day and being consumed with, um, yeah. yeah. But I think it just needs to be a little bit clearer about what women should exactly be
0: doing <laughs> with their engagement. <laughs> <laughs> so, Yeah. I, look at the, I mean, it could be that thing, you know, I'm probably the, I'm just pulling mm-hmm. a potential you know, men are probably more likely to do self-managed superannuation funds than maybe women, but women, because of Mm. their structural issues that they're doing the day-to-day, don't have the space to be able to. I know, the bandwidth. Yeah, the bandwidth to be able to kind of manage a self-managed superannuation, but, you know, I don't know the statistics on that. And the other
1: thing that comes into that with many, with the women in my research, though, and when this came up, is like, why do I want to put myself through more pain when they know they've got very little there? And so it, it's almost like that avoidance. Well, do I need to beat myself over the head again to tell me how much, how, how stuffed my future is going to be? So if you've got a ton of money there, and you, I mean, are you more likely to engage with it because it will make you feel better? But if you've got, you know, little to none there, I mean, how often do you want to look at that mm. really to, you know,
0: to to give yourself more pain um, and fear. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's something that I work with often is a lot of people come into my practice because they are freaking the hell out on, um, on their financial situation and having to, as we started this conversation, try and gear themselves with their mindset about improving that, that I can stay open, I can be less stressed and stay open to that, be empowered that I can ask for that raise or ask for, you know, take that financial risk. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is such a holistic conversation. Yes, it's, once, it's like an iterative
1: um, cycle that once you've done a little bit, the confidence builds and then you can do a little bit more and then you can do a little bit more and we saw that so much with the women that at first they had no idea and neither through death of a partner or um, or divorce, they, were throw- they would say literally I was thrown in the deep end. But, you know, going through it and working through it and then they became, they had their confidence and their self esteem just went through the roof because they they did it. You know, when they were would, would say, "Look, I've, I've paid off this huge debt, and now I've got a savings account, and now I can take my children on holiday." And I tell you what, it's, um, it was the most empowering experience. But it was through little by little, and I think that's the the key is start small with um, small behaviors and little little goals and little changes rather than engage with your super fund, you know. <laughs> so, so I think that's um, – and there's a lot of work around tiny habits and I think there's a lot in that. Start small and I, from my experience and my research is savings. So a small bit of savings is something that can actually change people's lives and just that activate the habit – the sense of security and uh, the change that can help change your mindset. So, from what I've seen over the last 15 to 20 years, working with the banks and savings I mean, is really incredible.
0: Yeah, it's it's about building those kind of muscles, really, uh, and that takes repetition and small starts and small wins as well. Yeah, you start seeing that you trim around the waist <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or a fat bank account in the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something that I I'm kind of passionate about, but it's often not talked about is money and shame. You know, you just touched a little bit about uh, how. We really give ourselves a hard time about the financial situation that we can be in. It, it goes back into that early upbringing and that we didn't get the tools or that we've had setbacks and then we beat ourselves up. What was the conversation about money and shame?
1: definitely about there was um and i remember again clearly this this a group of older women and um she brought up some stories she said that she's never even told her own children and she was a woman in her 70s and there was a shame ab- about uh, abusive situations earlier on and about the um the, her partner long-term husband how controlling it was and she shielded her family from that for all their lives and she spoke about it with and we felt so honored you know that she this woman spoke in this group for the first time ever about um, the shame that she had endured all those years and what I felt so sad is that she could never and that's part of upbringing never could talk to anyone else about it and here she is at that point in her life finally feeling that she could talk about these experiences and um so apart so with the shame we need to be able to talk to people more about it and having those conversations and what they realize that other people have this as well it's not just me (laughs) so it surely it shouldn't come down to research focus groups in order for that to happen yeah um, so I think that's what, you know, another special thing that, that needs to happen. And that's a cultural thing as well. And, you know, I was brought up the same way. My parents, they didn't, you don't talk about money. You know, it's that um, polite thing, money, religion, how we vote.
0: Yeah. I often say money is really the last taboo. It's mm-hmm. it's the conversation we didn't have around sex 20, 30 years <laughs> ago, right. you know. But it's important because we, as you are just saying then, it's so amazing when you hear someone's true money story or reveal a little bit about, you know, what it was like for you or when you were young or even when you were growing up or what it is now, how that softens ourselves and it gives ourselves a bit of a break and self-compassion can come in and You know, I talk about my money story often. I I write about it. I talk about it. I try and get others to speak about their money story because it needs to come out, you know, because there is so much darkness and so much hiddenness about it and it's not serving anyone. No, it isn't. It isn't. And if it's one thing that we can, um, I'd like to, you know, see brought into
1: schools with children is uh, is to teach them how to have money conversations. And and it is a bit of an art form. It isn't that something natural that we we have. So so why not have some sort of a guide around things and. when when it might be a difficult conversation and this is between you know with partners and relationships as well so let's help people learn how to have you know healthy money conversations before it gets to gets to a point where it causes pain and
0: hardship and look there's that certain amount of bravery that you've got to take it we've got to stop saying things like don't be emotional about money no it's going to have emotion to it you know it's very it is very emotional For men men and women, it's not just exclusively women. Men, there's a whole structural piece around they have to be a man and a provider and all you're struggling with that and it's not serving anyone where we can't say that that conversation can be open. How was uh, money
1: for you when you were growing up? Mm, Look, it was uh, interesting and it's only now in this research area over the last 15 years that I start to think about, you know, (laughs) what it meant for me growing up. My parents were, say, the generation that didn't talk about money and it was, um, my dad was an academic and so money was like, it was not to be wasted. My mum didn't work and so she had to not ask for money as such but an allowance. <laughs> so I could see control. Now I recognise it for what it is. I could see that there was control going on with money and and my dad. So I recognise that now and I thought, and at the time, I, all I could remember thinking is I never want to be in that situation where I have to ask for money <laughs> and I always want to have my own money and be financially independent. But it was almost like money was not to be enjoyed and It was a religious household and it was almost like, so it was um, to help others and to do God's work, but it wasn't to be enjoyed as such. It took me a long time to get over that and to be able to be a little bit frivolous, (laughs) you know, with money from time to time, uh, to enjoy it. We sort of got pocket money every now and again. It wasn't a right. It was like, been good <laughs> so for sure you know money is tied up with um, with many behaviors and um, and attitudes that we had at home and I wish they had talked to more about money so because yeah we're basically thrust out into the world without <laughs> without really knowing any from what we saw and um, and actually just on that note um, the literature does say that modeling um, how money is modeled in the home is far more powerful than how it's talked about <laughs> so be careful what you do um, rather than what you say so the home is very it's a really important part of socialization so I think that it has to be it, it has to be you know part of all all spheres and it never should stop it's not like learning about money should be contained in one part of our life or one
0: time of our life it goes on and on yeah beautiful captured so many things that I was so keen to ask you know that idea around money and pleasure That is a big thing that I work with with people is not being able to have pleasure with money or feeling that they can deserve it or allow it. But it comes up very often when I'm working with people. We get very that just gives me goosebumps, Jane. That is it's a really
1: it's a topic that I'm just starting to explore more in the literature. And do you know who suffer the most from that? Us sole parents, sole mothers. Uh, and, and not, they are even looked down on by society if they, if they are seen to be enjoying money, especially if they're receiving any type of, you know, sole parent benefit or um, it's like they will do anything to make out they're not enjoying life and they feel they should deny themselves any cultural activity and it's so wrong and it's a, it's a real issue that I'm starting to recognise more and more and I'm reading about more and more. It's a, it's a terrible thing actually, the way that we we see money that shouldn't be enjoyed or or bring us any pleasure.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's something that is massive theme that I'm constantly uh, working with clients. It's just how do we soften that? How can we and it's in that definition of financial wellbeing,
1: and I think that's why I like that definition more so than how we used to think and talk about money, because it does have that element of being comfortable enough to allow us to make choices to enjoy life, and um, and we tend to either stick to the can we pay our bills um, or can we provide for our uh, our retirement, and we forget about the middle. Part of life and about enjoying it and um, so it is part of that definition and I think we need to really remember that and um, and encourage that part as well yeah lovely thank you
0: the other thing just probably to finish on is um, because we didn't really get much guidance around um, money I always like to kind of ask this question about what is it that maybe it wasn't just about financial literacy but what is you individually what were you kind of as you've kind of grown up, what is that thing that you thought, you know, I wish my parents taught me this about money, for you particularly? Well, it's
1: about what we were just talking about and I wish that I could feel this, you know, had the sense that we could enjoy it without feeling guilty. And, uh, you know, guilt is part of, uh, you know, Church as well, so it was always imbued in anything that, that was that anything good in life was it, you know, it was about guilt. So I think that was it because it was it, we did always feel guilty, and I can always remember if I did have something new, even as an adult with, with, my, with my daughter, um, it's like I would say. Oh, where did that come from? And I would immediately feel guilty unless it was a, a, a washing machine or a, a he liked books, books or you know something that was um, not wasteful. So I sort of it was really um, I, I really wish that I had allowed myself to enjoy enjoy money a lot earlier and um, and not feel guilty about it. So I, I think that's probably the main thing. But I mean, he was big on saving and the austerity type of thing which you know again is very um, is very wise I suppose um, and you know we, I, I sort of knew that you know we needed a budget and pay, and make sure to pay the bills and had some savings set aside for emergencies but I think that security was was overwhelming the most important thing to him and that is good but it also I think it it um, it's it put my life into a direction that maybe wasn't what i maybe have chosen but it's like choose the secure job choose the secure uh, profession and choose this rather than um so, so what we wanted or what the values were our own values were were sort of not taken into account it was really more about sensible and like we talked about a bit earlier it's not to be taken into account let's just do what's what's practical and what's logical and what makes good sense. So, um, without sort of bringing your values, and I'm really big on – First of all, discovering what your values are before talking about money. So, that has to be part of the any financial education or any financial literacy training. Um, what are your values? Because you, if unless they line up, it's never going to work out. So, I think that having those principles of, of where your values lie um, are really important. So, again, that wasn't part of the conversation. It was just uh, being sensible. <laughs>
0: So, Roslyn, thank you so much for being on the Financial Therapy Podcast. I feel like we're going to have to get you back on. Uh, there's probably plenty of territory we can cover, but this has just been absolutely wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing your passion and your own story and all your research. And thank you. Really appreciate you being here.
1: It's been really great to talk with you, Jane. And um, it's fascinating. And I think that your your role is just amazing and, and it's so so
0: much needed. So it's fantastic. Thank you, Rosalind. That's so lovely. You know, some of you might be interested to go and check out my book, The Billionaire Buddha. For those that live in Australia and want to get the hard copy, it's best to get in contact with me. You can find a link here on the financial therapy website. If you wanted an ebook, of course, you can get it at most online book retailers. I truly hoped you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the Financial Therapy Podcast as we continue to discuss a bigger conversation with us and money. Also, go to financialtherapy.org for more resources, financial well-being programs, or you can work with me. Just get in touch. And thank you for listening.